0: you have your Bible with you please turn to 1st Samuel 16 we are continuing uh, this is the second in the series on the life of David uh, I titled the series David the warrior poet and when you think of David he has more uh, words dedicated to him than any other character in the Bible and I think one of the things that makes him so amazing and unique is he has these two extremes he's he's the warrior right but he's also a poet he's 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 in touch with his tender side. And I think it's a good model. When you think of Jesus, right, the lion and the lamb. And it's important to have both of these aspects as we think about who we're supposed to be in God. And when we come to these characters in the Bible, there's two things we're doing. One, and really the primary thing we're wanting to do, as I said last week, is see Jesus in the passage. How is David a picture of Christ, right? Right? Jesus himself calls himself the son of David. But also, we want to find out, how can we emulate these characters? It's a definitely an important thing to be like these characters in their godly qualities. So, what we don't want to do is only emulate a character. And we don't only want to say this character is completely Jesus and nothing else. But rather, what we find is in Christ, we actually have the hope of aiming to be like David. Does that make sense? That's what we're going to try to understand throughout this series is how can we better understand who Christ is and therefore better understand how we in Christ can emulate this hero David in our own lives last week we saw uh, we haven't met David yet so if you're coming this morning you weren't here last week you didn't miss anything we're gonna meet him this morning we learned last week about Saul and how the people wanted an earthly king and and Samuel the prophet and the judge came and and chose Saul anointed him and Saul failed and God said, I see a new king, a king after my own heart, a king after God's heart. And that's what we will see this morning is, is David coming on the scene. So let's look at Psalm six, or excuse me, 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 to 13. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of the sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. He he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you would attend to this discussion, that you would open our eyes to see more clearly how your gospel operates, how you, through your son Jesus, looks on our heart, and actually renews our heart rather than looking for our outward appearance alone. In your name we pray. Amen. I've used this illustration before, but we have a lot of new people, and it's the most obvious one, so I'm going to use it again. Raiders of the Indiana Jones. In the last crusade, I had to ask my son which one it was. You know, it's the one where they're going for the Holy Grail. So I almost said Indiana Jones and the Holy Grail, but that's Monty Python. So, it's the scene where Indiana Jones crosses the bridge, and there before him are all the options of the gorgeous cups, and only one of them will actually be the grail. The the grail is said to be the cup that Jesus drank at the Last Supper, right? And we don't believe that exists, nor would there be any power in it, but nonetheless, for the movie, it works. So, he shows up, and he's looking, and there's a knight. It looks like a ghost, and he just stands there, very stoic, and he explains that you must choose wisely. And he looks around and sees dead skeletons of people who chose poorly. And as he's about to select that cup and thinking about it, the enemy runs in front, the German, I don't know the name of the guy, kind of moves him out of the way, sees the cups, grabs the most beautiful looking, you know, it's gold with all the emeralds and and rubies and diamonds, and he drinks out of the cup, he dips it in the water, drinks out of the cup, and he dies, right? And the knight says, he chose poorly. Poorly. And then Indiana Jones is like, okay, what do I do? I've got to choose one. And what does he do? Aha! A carpenter. What would he have? A wooden cup. And he picks the wooden cup, the the most basic, boring cup in the mix. And, of course, he drinks it and he lives, right? Okay. Yay, Indiana Jones! What is it about us that no matter how often we study this, no matter how often we come to these ideas, our default is beauty. Our default is success. We are drawn to the cup, and to the house, and to the person, and to whatever that is glorious. And we're so afraid of having our heart actually be what we're measured by. And in this passage, what we're going to find this morning is that God is looking on your heart. Okay, that is what you are measured by. Now here's the good news. Christ renews your heart. So that's the good news. But what we don't want to have happen is uh, we play this game where, well, in our Christian world, um, it's Jesus and my heart. But in my other life, sort of like I have two lives, you know, I need to get everything in order according to appearance. God wants us to have one life in Christ where our heart is the measure. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Um, how do we have a heart for God? Okay, And it's a narrative, so I'm going to just kind of look at two characters. We're going to look at Samuel, and he does some bad stuff. And we're going to get at David. He does some good stuff. That's my outline. And I literally just made it. I had more written here, but that's as simple as I can get it. Thanks, Shane. Shane's like, that's a horrible outline. Uh, wow, you know. Shane's my outline friend. He helps me sometimes on my outlines. Is that a good one? Samuel, bad stuff. The things that we do. I mean, I'm sorry. No, no. Everyone's whispering, Saul. Samuel. Samuel. Saul's not in the picture. Did I say Saul. Samuel, come on, quit it, Tina. Okay, oh, who whispered? Okay, Samuel makes a mistake. So let's just jump in. Sorry, everybody. Samuel is grieving over Saul. Saul, by the way, is doing just fine in his own world. Uh, he's still the king, he's still in power. He's just, he and Samuel have now split ways. And, and Samuel is in grief because Samuel was the, was the, the one God used to not only find Saul but to anoint him and he can't believe it and he's grieving and and just as a quick aside when when God says are you going to keep grieving when people are in grief just be very careful this is not some sort of a proof text to not grieve you need to grieve so that's just an aside but the problem for Samuel is his grief is going too long there is a point in which it is maybe time to move on but I would even ask argue more importantly it's the reason he's grieving I think Samuel's grieving, not because of Saul, but because he can't figure out what happened. It's like Christmas vacation, you know, when Chevy Chase has put all the lights up, and he's ready, Clark Griswold, right? And it's time to, you know, do this, and it doesn't work. And he can't figure out what went wrong, and he's kicking the deer. I think Samuel can't understand why it didn't work. Because Samuel is still operating according to the, the principle, outward appearance is what matters. And so now, God speaks to Samuel and says, you're going to go anoint a new king. Now, I just want to jump ahead to the, the, the moment where he sees Eliab. And then for him, at that moment, he knows he's found the king. Okay? And so he's stuck in this outward appearance uh, mentality. And this is where I think we are stuck. Uh, for, for Samuel, it almost looks like Eliab is a rebound king. It's like That one didn't work, but here's another tall, handsome guy that looks just like the last guy. I'll choose him. It's like he learned nothing in between relationships. That's for the college students. But he needed to learn something. What should he have learned? Well, back in chapter 13, right after Saul sacrificed without Samuel's help, God told Samuel, I'm going to provide a king after my own heart, someone who on the inside cares about me, emulates me, longs for me, looks like me. So why would Samuel then come to this setting and not have it in his mind? And that's what we're trying to figure out. I think we're drawn toward beauty. You know those drawings? Uh, Have you seen the drawing where you you look at it and you see the beautiful woman with the feather hat and her chin and her mole? And and you're like, oh, and then someone says, wait a minute, there's actually another face in there. And you go, what are you talking about? They say, look again, there's an old woman, look closely. And you look, and it turns out that that jawline's like her big nose and... The hat was like an eyebrow or something, and the mole or her eye. Anyone see that drawing? Am I the only one? Thank you, Renee. Thank you. Others have seen this. Why are we so drawn to beauty? We look at that drawing, and it's like, oh, I see it. A beautiful, and then someone's like, no. Actually, the more obvious thing is this plain-looking person. It's, it's kind of rooted in us. It's something in us that wants to find meaning in the outer world, right? And that's what we find in this passage um where is that coming from i wasn't sure if i was going to deal with this i'm going to just deal with it for a moment shane told me he would stop me if i started this point i'm going to go forward there's this little weird interaction for samuel as he moves into town i want to just draw out for a minute and it's the townspeople samuel is coming to town with his heifer and his horn okay that's what he's got and somehow in bethlehem there's probably someone watching the horizon for enemies and they see him coming and they go alert the elders. And the elders are doing their jobs, whatever they do, and they clean up and they come out and they realize it's Samuel, and they're terrified, and they race out to catch him before he comes in. And they ask him, What's your purpose? Now, there's a couple of possibilities you could think, well, they're doing this because they know that Samuel and Saul aren't quite getting along, and they don't want him to come in and bring the problem into Bethlehem. There could be that going on. But most commentators say, rather, that what happens is when Samuel comes to town, it's either to bring blessing or to bring a curse. Like, a, not a curse, but a judgment, right? And there's something, and I mean, almost every commentator said this, there's something in our, all of our hearts that are, we're terribly afraid of the judgment. Right? Have you ever had someone say, I want to talk to you. Can we meet next week? What do I do? One of my first meetings with Tom. I said, Tom, let's go to lunch. I haven't told him I was gonna do this. And I was brand new and we're at lunch and about five or 10 minutes in, I said, by the way, I have no agenda. And he goes, okay, I thought I had done something wrong. I'm like, I'm just wanting to meet, you know? There's something about the religious person coming in and, and saying let's meet that makes people fearful. And by the way, it works both ways. I have people all the time, hey, can we get coffee? And I'm okay, either something's really bad they're going to confront me. <laughs> like, why can't we just have coffee? So, I love coffee. Let's just go have coffee. And there, I think the answer is this. In the fall, our hearts are broken, and we are sinful, and we know it. And even if you don't have specific sins in your mind, there's an underlying sense that I need to be clean. And when Samuel comes to town, it just creates that tension. When, when, when God comes close you start to ask yourself, am I clean? And the problem in this passage is the way this society wants to clean themselves is through a king that's tall and and mighty. They want to do it through outward appearances. And it's exactly the same for you and I. We want our home to look right. Right? I, I think most of you in college, how many of you, and I'm just, no raise of hands. I ask lots of rhetorical questions. Are choosing a career by this mo- mo- method alone I know I can get in and I know it'll pay the bills or it'll even provide like at a cocktail party hey I'm a, I'm a doctor I'm a lawyer how many of us choose what we do because of what it will provide rather than am I good at this is this something I've been made to do do I have this aptitude right how many of you when you think about a spouse Uh, A significant other are starting with, you know, yes, I want good character, and I want them to have this, and maybe have some humor, but looks. That's, That's number one, right? How many of you do that? How many of us do that? We are constantly looking at outward appearance. How many of us feel better when we look better? And when we look in the mirror on one weird day, or in a weird mirror, and something doesn't look right, or you have that zit, or whatever it is, you just feel worse. I'm less of a person today. Anyone relate to that? Is that just me? Okay, you can pray for me. What's going on there? We are, we have shame in our soul and we're looking for outward measures to make us feel better. And I I said last week um, that I would talk about racism this week and I really regret that because I don't want to do it. It's so hot right now. It's such a hot topic. But I will say this. this. In this passage we see I think, some of the underpinnings of of racism in that. You look for outward measurements by which to judge the inward heart. Um, As people, we are meaning makers. Have you ever heard that term? Humans, one of the ways we image God is we we, we try to draw connections, right? And and sometimes we're okay at it. All my children have gone through phases, usually at age two, where they align certain objects by size and shape and color. It's a very natural thing to do, Right? But sometimes we're really bad at, at how we connect things and put things together. <clears throat> Emily and I had a friend. I was in seminary. We were visiting in Edmund. We are staying in Edmund on vacation or whatever, a break. And she came by. And she was going through a hard time. And uh, I said to her, I, I always like, I use her real name? I don't like choosing names on the fly. Anyway, I looked at her. Her name's Tiffany. She's not listening to this. And I said, how are you? And she said, did they teach you that in seminary? My brother-in-law is in seminary, and he asked me the same question. I'm like, wow, interesting method of connection there. Another time it happened, I was preaching in Colorado, and afterwards, uh, the grandmother of the former RUF person who had been fired comes up to me, because she was visiting the in-laws and her children, and she says, you preach fast. Kyle preached fast they teach you that in seminary yeah I said yes it was my final course (laughs) no I didn't say that so we sometimes we make these horrible we we see connections but we're making these false um, value judgment calls and and that can really break it down and all I want to say as we move forward is there is something in all of us that thinks somehow we can read the tea leaves better than other people it's in our passage. It's, it's really interesting. It's subtle, but when Eliab is brought before Samuel, let me just paint the picture of what's going on. Most people would say, he's the oldest, David's the youngest, and there's eight. And that's possibly true, probably true. However, when you get to the word youngest for David, you have that little uh, number in your Bible that tells you it also could mean smallest, it's very possible that Samuel has ranked his ki- or Jesse has ranked his kids. He's like, You're coming for the king. I know my boys. This one's the man. Like, he is the guy you're after. Let me just get him all ready. And I mean, the others will be there, but you're, he's the one I'm going to parade before you. However, it happened, Samuel sees Eliab, and he totally agrees. And in his mind, we aren't sure how this works, but God hears it, but no one else hears it. Samuel says, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. In other words, I see. I'm like, it's not just, mm mm-hmm, six foot five, you know. It's this emotional connection that he has for a moment. And it's in that emotional connection that God speaks to him where he says, do not look, verse 7, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him, meaning I have not chosen him, even though your culture would have chosen him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. And I just want to draw your attention to the question, how are you drawn to people like you? How, you know how often I see people, I'm like, they look alike. How interesting. Is that weird? Or it's, we like people that look like us. Like, unfortunately, people used to say, Ryan, you and your wife look just alike. You could be brother and sister. We just like ourselves. And so you find someone that looks like the person in the mirror but has longer hair. Ah, I like me, and you're the closest me I can get. I applaud you if you marry someone who looks radically different. But when we come to racism, I don't want to really dive into it too far. I just want to say this. A lot of people are offended because they're like, quit telling me what I am. Quit telling me that I'm a racist. And I think a Christian response would probably be this. Probably so. I'm a sinner. I like me. I like people who typically look like me. So in my, if I'm not careful, if I'm not walking by the Spirit, I'm certain there is residue of racism or maybe classism or maybe you think OSU is a better team than other teams. But we all have ways we think we're better based on certain groupings. And it's Jonathan Edwards in his resolutions where he, several times he says something along the lines of "Whatever I, a resolution to, for himself to follow before the Lord. If I see something in another person that I cannot stand, find out how first I personally have that in me. That's pretty awesome. That would be a pretty biblical response, right? The plank and the speck. Um, bradford the great puritan who was killed he, he came to christ at 45 like five years later was martyred uh it was his um you know he's the one that said there before the grace of god goes john is it john bradford i always want to say sam bradford but i'm an ou guy <laughs> i think it's john bradford there but for the grace of god goes and then he inserted his name john bradford he would see these prisoners and he would say that should be me but, but for god's grace So, that's all I can do on racism this morning. I'm sorry, but I will say this. The church should be leading the way on on this sin issue and on every sin issue where we are seeking to demean a human being in any way, shape, or form. To lower them and build ourselves up. And the reason we can do that, we're going to now look at the good guy, David, is because we have, in Christ, the opportunity to have a heart it looks like God's heart. Um, and I want to look at David for a minute. This is interesting. When, David go, when they go to get David and bring him in, or actually, I t- I'm sorry, I'm backing up. In verse 11, Samuel looks at Jesse and says, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest or the smallest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. I don't have very good Hebrew. Right? That can be attested to by Thomas, probably. But I did take Hebrew. And my professor was actually raised Jewish, spoke really great Hebrew. And he would read these long passages in Hebrew. And one word I remember very clearly is wahine. Am I right, Thomas? Behold, wahine. He would do that over and over. So I'm going to do that for you. You all learned Hebrew today. When you look that word up, what it means is it usually means pay Close attention. Now, most scholars, most interpreters of this passage would say here's what's going on. Right? Um, Samuel has just fallen victim yet again to this natural desire to look at outward beauty. God sort of said, Stop it. We're looking at the heart. He starts to listen and doesn't ever insert his own viewpoint. They go through the next six kids or sons. Nobody's there that looks right. God's not saying this is he, so he says to Jesse, is there any other? And Jesse basically says there's the runt. That's how most people would interpret this, the runt. He's out doing menial work. And I think that's accurate. I mean, I, I, I do think that's supposed to come across this way. And it's important to understand that as we look at the character of David, he does image Christ, right? And, and when you look at how Christ is prophesied in Isaiah, Isaiah says he is not going to be particularly handsome or of a particular stature that you're going to want to follow him because of his physical appearance we know that when he goes before the priest uh when he was eight days old they had to sacrifice the two turtle doves a sign of being extremely poor right Shane preached um on this a little bit from john but when he goes out and calls his disciples nathaniel says what good comes out of nazareth you know he's like there's this constant sense that he's low and lowly And I want to draw your attention to a place in 1 Corinthians that we looked at last year when we went through 1 Corinthians, where Paul says this. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through folly." Of what we preach to save those who believe for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom but we preach Christ crucified there is something that should bother you but the fact that the guy you follow as your Savior was weak there's something that if you're really honest that seems out of place right and I think for, the, for these folks here who are trying to anoint a king, for the Israelites, it's shocking that it would be such a lowly and insignificant-seeming person. Okay, that's take number one, and I totally agree with that, but I'm going to change it a little bit. Wahine, behold, he is keeping the sheep. You see, when, when Samuel comes to town and says, I want to anoint one of your sons, Saul, by the way, is doing really well. Has a huge army. Wants to kill me, so I had to come up with a strategy to bring a heifer. uh, If he would know what we were doing. this is all under wraps. We're not telling anybody this is happening. But I'm going to take one of your sons and basically give them a death sentence. Is it possible? Now, this is just my conjecture. Thomas and I will talk about this later. That Jesse, like Jacob, loves the youngest son. And he's thinking... Just, yeah, you stay out there with the sheep. You know, I don't want this death sentence for this guy. Behold, he's keeping the sheep. Like, why? Why this one? Why are you wanting this one? I mean, don't you think Aliab or one of these other six would do? But the beautiful one, the one that had the heart for God, the one that maybe, we don't know for sure, I'm conjecturing, that Jesse loved is with the sheep. But what I do know is this, whether Jesse... Cared that he was with the sheep or not it matters why well Jesus we know calls himself and often refers to himself as son of David but he's also the great shepherd of the sheep you see when David was anointed he did not say thank you I'm done with sheep I'm never gonna see another sheep again did he in fact in chapter 17 when he shows up to find out what's happening on the battle lines Eliab's like, why are you not with the sheep? He's still in that role. And we know that later, when Nathan, the prophet, goes to him to wake him up about what he had done, he uses a parable about a man who stole another man's sheep. And that made David angry. He loves sheep. And even more importantly, maybe, would be this. His greatest psalm, right? We talked about this last week. I think his most known psalm. The one that if you went on the street with a microphone, like J.E. Leno used to do, do you know any psalms? You know, This is like the one that would people, what is the one psalm that people might be able to remember, even if they hadn't gone to church since they were like four? The Lord is my shepherd. Not the Lord is tall and mighty, though that's true, but there's something about our passion and our need and the recognition that we have a shepherd as a king who oversees you who loves you, who, who holds you, who cares for you. And there's something about David that is so appealing in this passage that when all the pomp and all the circumstances taking place, I mean, there's no Internet. There's nothing fun in Bethlehem to do. And here comes Samuel in this anointing. And we know David can leave the sheep. He does it in chapter 17 to go take food, right? He, he can leave them with somebody. And yet he decides, you know what I think is more important? these insignificant animals. I'm not going to go. That's, that's wasted. In fact, I know Aliab. I've been, I've been raised with that guy. You can have your king. This group of animals is what I care about. We had a, uh, I don't, this just came to me, but um, Joe Cruz, you did a great job on Wednesday night, and you used this great illustration I'm going to steal from you. Jesus, he says, you go, to, you go to the store and you look for grapes. And you look in these bags of grapes. And you do. You go and you go, oh, that has got a mold on one. That's a little wrinkly, right? I don't want that bag. I want the one with the perfect grapes. And uh, Joseph says, Jesus goes into the grocery store and finds the bag with the, all the gnarly grapes. And that's the bag he chooses. It's not because he doesn't like grapes. But it's because that's the way you actually are. You and I are actually like sheep who have gone astray. And because when you were 13, you prayed a prayer, you didn't just become Superman. In your heart and soul, your flesh still is a wayward sheep prone, prone to wander. And we have a shepherd who pursues us and loves us. And my hope is this morning, you will find that beautiful that regardless of anything you've done, whether you've received Christ or not, whether you think you're the best Christian in the room or not, you need a shepherd. You need a Savior who loves you, who pursues you, who stays with you while all the world is going to the party. And there's something about us then emulating David that I think that would give us an air of calmness, an air of... I don't have to be at everything great. I don't have to always be nervous and antsy and choosing the most beautiful thing because I have a Savior who loves me. Now I can go and love his sheep as well. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the great shepherd of the sheep. And we can't even begin to follow you until we admit that we are wayward. In our own flesh, even this morning, the thoughts and the, and the ideas and the things that gets our, get our attention are so often antithetical to you. But you are a gentle shepherd. You've brought us even into this room this morning. And even if our minds are wandering and we can't wait till it's over, we're here. And you're giving us the message that you love your children, you love your sheep. In fact, you became the lamb that was slain that your blood may cover us, that we are righteous before you. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would apply that to our minds and hearts in such a way this morning that we would be changed people, living out, like David, a calm, serene faith based on the heart and not always seeking after outward appearance alone. All for your glory, Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.